You're now tuned into the Fully Booked Podcast with Mace, French and Pox. Enjoy the listen. Where to go? Tell me where to go. Welcome to the best of Fully Booked Meets Part 3. First up is Emeka. Brilliant journey, brilliant story. Really, really, really powerful message in his in his meet with us. Please, please, please take in the best bits of Mecca. Alright, um, I guess starting from the beginning, I guess I, I grew up in I grew up in Hackney. Yeah. And um and during that period, sort of growing up in Hackney, it's you know what the ends are like in terms of it's like you're you're growing up in the mixture of different personalities, different people, and then there's a stage in life where everyone's path is starting to form. Mm-hmm. And then I remember going to the youth club, and we all used to receive the same type of information in terms of you can achieve something. Like you know, the youth workers were there to help us, um, but not everyone took heed to those advice. Okay. Um, and I remember sort of some of the pinnacle points being in school because I used to go to school in Bethnal Green and it was sort of predominantly sort of Bangladeshi Asian. Asian, yeah. And um, our school was synonymous and had a history of racial violence. When you say, yeah. When you say racial violence, do you mean as in the Asians attacking other ethnics or people? It's mainly black. But it was like the rest of the world, but it was like the other side was mainly sort of blacks versus... Um, oh, it was like a almost like a running feud between yeah, the Asian, yeah, yeah. but like Beng- they call them Bengali or Bengali, Bengali yes, yeah, um, Bengalis and basically the Afro Caribbean yeah. uh, yeah. demographic. Exactly, and oh. so it was um, for me. It was weird because being in school, I felt like when we were involved, having to defend ourselves a lot of the time, yeah. um, I felt like I was fighting for a reason or was involved for a reason because it was it's a racial thing. It's like what do you mean because of my colour of my skin? Like, you don't like me and because we're in your area mm. type of thing. And so for me, I found a lot of issues with that. So then going back to the area, going back to the ends, and then where the area are now in dispute with other areas, but the people they're fighting looked exactly like us. Yeah. Mm. So for me, right from a young age, that put me off. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I felt like all our parents were struggling for the same causes probably working in the same hospitals cleaning or dinner ladies or whatever it is and so for me my eyes kind of opened right from a young age um and so that's what sort of totally put me off of that so it's like when i'm with my friends at the time if there's a situation it's like you you know your brothers you back your friends of course but one of the things nobody ever called my phone to go and actively go and do something Okay. So your demographic of friends, was it a mixed bunch or was it just all Afro-Caribbean? Um, in school, it was it was mixed because mm. it pretty much got along with everyone. But in the area, it was pretty much predominantly sort of Afro-Caribbeans, mm-hmm. pretty much. And so um, that, was my, that was my stance. And the reason I kind of took that stance was, again, comparing the two situations, being at school and being in the area. Um, and I remember one of my mentors in school said to me, you know what, take a step back from all your friends and try and figure out what you want to do. How, how old were you at this age? I was Rough, 16. Okay, so year 11. Yeah, yeah, pretty much year 11. Um, and he's advocated for us a lot. 
sort of during the sort of three, four years of sort of the peak violence in school. I think year nine was pre pretty much one of the worst times in school. We had police helicopters. It was really sort of bad during that period. Mm. So I remember he's, he, you know, he had a conversation with us where he set up this sort of um, black history, um, not month, but just black history throughout the academic year. But it was outside school hours because they wouldn't let him do it within school hours. And so during this period, he told us, go home, think about what you want to do and start thinking about your peer groups because you're at the age where friendships come and go. Between the age of 16 and 21, I'll, I'll never forget this. It's like uh, the turnover of friends is, is, is quite rapid, you know? So you leave your 11 and then all the people you've been friends with for five years, you know, you might be cool with another five or six of them going into college. In college, you make new friends. From there, you're only with them for two years. And then you go into uni and uni, you only have a handful of people that you leave. So by the time that five years has come around, if you're making decisions based on the people around you, those decisions have, may have huge consequences on your life. Mm. And I remember going home that day and I saw my mom. She left for work, I think about six o'clock in the morning. And then she came back about half ten in the evening. I was trying to do the maths. <laughs> thinking, how many how many hours is that? Yeah. So she had these two heavy bags. And then I ran up to her and I took the bags off her. And I remember what he said. And then all I didn't know how, but all I was thinking to myself is that this is it. Like my purpose is to help retire this woman. Because mm -hmm. at that point it was sort of me, my younger brother, and sort of my my sort of baby brother, who's pretty much about one or two at the time. And and I remember the next day there was a situation in the area where it was pretty much we need to go to the other side and do something. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and the option was there for a lot of the people to to get involved. Mm. And um, it was literally making a decision at that point and saying, you know what? Even just being around is not an option anymore. Do you know? And so it's like putting yourself out of the situation and saying, like I'm, I'm totally stepping away from even just being a peripheral person in these situations because it doesn't really make any more sense because I need to be there to uphold that pact I made for myself in regards to retiring my mum and being a positive influence from my brother. And so for me, that was, I guess, the start of having a more positive mindset sort of moving forward in regards to um, the impact I wanted to make just within my family at this point. And then in terms of trying to help others, eventually it came later on down the line. The other thing I wanted to say was with the teacher who spoke to you about the 1621, you said about he almost had his own, as part outside the school curriculum, he had his own agenda where he wanted to, he kind of had a, like a black history um, course or something. Course yeah. of some sort, but kind of outside the curriculum. What, um, so that day, was it just a conversation? Was it in one of his classes where he'd done outside the lesson? It was, it was one of his, it was one of his sessions outside. Sessions. Of, yeah, yeah. In terms of, um, where we had to go see him outside of, like, when schools was done, pretty yeah. much 3.15. Yeah. Go to Mr. Richards. Yeah. Um, and just listen in terms of, like, book recommendations and stuff like Sick. that. Um, it was, it was powerful. It was powerful because it's, you start to appreciate, what's happened before. Right. Because we're all living in the moment, not really respecting the actions the of the people in the past. Us, yeah. You know? Important. You know, and so for me, those were powerful things. Even sort of going back to my own sort of personal history within sort of where I'm from in Nigeria. Mm. I started asking my parents, my dad, a lot of questions about 
about the war, this war that, you know, you know, that the civil war that sort of blighted Nigeria in, in the 60s and starting to learn more about sort of my culture. So the more I learned about these things, the more it grew my ambition. Mm, sense of pride. Yeah. yeah. You know, finding out my dad only had a level of education up until primary school because of all the people that died around him, he was then put into, um, they called him a houseboy. Mm. You're sent to a rich family and you just go and serve them. And then all of a sudden your education is not important anymore um, because all these people around him have passed away. So having to deal with all that kind of trauma from a young age and being educated to this point, having made something for himself, set up his own businesses, eventually going to Lagos, learning a trade, making money, eventually sort of bringing the family here. Mm. So I'm thinking you did that with limited resources. What excuses what do I excuse? have? Mm -hmm. You know, in regards to when I hear a lot of young people in the end say, oh, there's nothing out here for us. There's nothing out here for us. And I'm like, there is stuff out there, but it's your mindset is not ready to seize the opportunities. Yeah. You know, and so these, these are some of the problems that I used to face in regards to when I eventually started working with young people and understanding there has to be a shift of mindset. There has yeah. to be a shift of finding a purpose because once I present an opportunity for you, the opportunities that are on the roads are something that you're more interested in because it has instant gratification. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants instant gratification, even us as adults, but in our way, it comes through things like credit and loans. You can't afford that thing yet, so you get the credit because you want it now. Young people don't have credit balance and history yet. So for them, that two grand that you're talking about that you can earn in the next two, three months as an 18, 19 year old working on, you know, lower sort of income, it can somebody can promise that to them in, in a week mm. type of thing. And so those options were there for me as well. And I remember one of my first jobs was working as a sales assistant in a, in a decorating shop. And I was working, I'm making about three pounds 52 per hour. We've been there, bro. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Some of us still there. You know, but... I think for me, it was it was always about having that mindset and knowing that I never wanted to give, I guess, police a reason to lock me up. <clears throat> because again, going back to that pact that I made for myself. So it was like, you know what? If I wanted those Pradas that cost 160 pounds, you know, being 16, that's a lot of money. Do you mm. know what I mean? I know I need to work this amount of weekends <laughs> to be able to afford it mm. type of thing. And so that was, but not everyone thought like that. And I don't blame people who wanted that instant, but it was all about different points of, that click yeah. and for me it came at that point and everyone has come at a different point you mentioned um you got recommended books from early on yeah what kind of books was going was you getting recommended to um one of the ones that i remember was the philosophies and opinions of marcus garvey okay yeah i've read that was there um there's another book called brainwash by tom burrell mm -hmm. Um, which is another important book. And um, sort of sort of the poems of Maya Angelou. Okay. So all these things. And then looking at, again, sort of like the history of Biafra, the civil war in Nigeria. And so I started sort of researching all these little things. And so um, started looking at those things and starts making me wonder. It's like, wow, what else is out there? Mm -hmm. And then met Nelson Mandela's story. Obviously, everybody's kind of paid attention in history class. You know about apartheid and stuff like that. But do you really know about it beyond what's in the curriculum? Do you know mm. what I mean? Because everything's filtered in education to a certain degree. It's not until you decide to educate yourself 
in, in a way that's not filtered, then you start to, you know, question things mm -hmm. a lot more. And so that's that then became my journey. So these sort of key books then sort of led me to, okay, what's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? And that's how it just sort of kicked off. So I'm not going to lie. When you you spoke a couple of minutes ago <coughs> and there were so many things that popped up in my head. Mm -hmm. So we got to the age of about 18 and I feel like we've jumped now where you're now doing public speaking and being invited because not everyone gets invited to speak at Birmingham. Birmingham never contacted me to speak. Mm. <laughs> you're now doing, you, you mentioned that you're doing, um, your work, your teaching. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something about a first book, which, yeah. leads, which makes me believe you've got more than one. Yeah. How, so I, I need to know the journey for my simple, for, my, for me, I'm a simple person. Yeah. I need to know the journey. So from 18 to the age you are now, what's that journey been like? And I don't know, French, if you had something else. I was, was going to... I just yeah. pose the same question because you said you've, you've mentioned teaching, you've mentioned yeah. speaking. So I was just going to yeah. ask how where, how did that fall into place. Yeah, how it all fell into place. Yeah, so pretty much like eventually after college, obviously getting into university, um, for me it was always about stuff that I was good at at the time and computers. I was good at computers. So yeah. it's like, okay, football is not going to work out because of this injury, you know, from a Nigerian household, you can't just go to work. You have to go and, you know, get a, a degree. And so mm -hmm. that's what I went to do. But then I fell out of love with computer science mm -hmm. after mid the first year. Um, Did you but, move away from the area for uni? Yeah, so yeah I was in Luton. To get away. Yeah, yeah, I was in Luton, okay. uh, Bedfordshire. Yeah. Um, so fell out of love with that course, um, but I just kind of stuck through it. But then by the end of the second year, I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I moved back to the area, um, kind of now searching, okay, what do I actually want to do? How was that, by the way, you saying you no longer go in uni in your household? Um, as you can imagine, it wasn't, it didn't go down too well. Um, but I guess my mom and my dad was more about find what you want to do, um, and, and get, get there straight, you know, get there as quickly as possible, basically get back on the track. Um, and I remember going back to the youth club and I remember Janet, who's like a second mom to me. Mm. Um, she's like, oh, do you want to just volunteer for a few weeks? Okay. Um, and I remember going in there and seeing all these young people that were like 13 when I left for uni. Mm -hmm. Now 16, a lot of them taller than me and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so being there, I think after the first week and I was like, wow, there's a negative cycle here. Hearing the conversations, I remember these conversations and I remember the outcome of these conversations. And those outcomes were people dying. Where's the youth club, by the way? Is it on your estate? Is it? Yeah, on the estate okay. in the area in Hackney. Okay. Um, and I remember people dying, people going to prison. So I'm thinking like, what, what action is t being taken here? So these, <laughs> these young ones don't make those mistakes. Cause three years ago, they were innocent, just in a cage playing football. Mm. But now this is the conversation has drastically changed. And I remember hearing that and I was like, I can do something. And so, and she's like, okay, do you want to sort of do your sort of youth work badges and stuff like that? So I started studying doing that and I started engaging with those young people. And so gradually I started feeling like I can then be that Mr. Richards mm -hmm. yeah. influence type of guy. I've had the experience with football and obviously went to uni and that stopped and now I'm back. And then it's drawing me back to youth work again. It's like working with younger people. And, and then that's how it just kind of just started. And it was just taking away one of the evenings that they had, which was more about social, you know, how it is in a youth club, playing table tennis and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm. So I've incorporated one of the one of the sessions which was all about debates and how we can then sort of help each other progress and 
I didn't know how people were going to take that because I've taken away table tennis, I've taken away the pool table, I've taken away the PlayStation. I'm like, this session... Took away table tennis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a mad... And I love table tennis. That's drastic, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it was only for one day out of the four, you know? So just on a Wednesday, this is what we're doing, this workshop. Like, those who are interested will come. And funny enough, more people came to that than normal sessions. Okay. After a while, people were talking about it. Mm. And it was not just me talking to them, it was just a discussion amongst all of us and everyone's just having these discussions and then within that it, we were talking about history we we're talking about um broken homes how that affects us because all these things come with trauma mm. that nobody sort of talks about in terms mm. of mental health within our community we're talking about um uh peer pressure stereotypes um how these stereotypes are placed upon us and how they've consumed us within our community even worse than sometimes outsiders. And one of the examples that I used to give young people at the time would be um, the classic one. If you see a white woman walking towards you late in the evening and she crosses the road, how do you feel? Oh man, come on, she's racist, bro. Like, what's that? What's that about? What's that about? <laughs> okay, fair enough. A lot of people react like that. I'm like, okay, same street, same time. This time there's three of you guys walking. But instead of seeing a white woman, you see 10 black guys that you don't recognize walking towards you. How do you react? One of them said, um, bruv, we pattern up. <laughs> just, like, just get ready for yeah. whatever's going to happen. Yeah. Other one said, bruv, like, let's take divert, go a different route. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Other one's like, just don't make no eye contact. And I'm like, what's the difference between what you said and what the white women did? Because there's already a negative connotations that they're going to do something to you. Oh. <laughs> the, penny, the penny dropped. The penny dropped. Yeah. And I'm like, so... Why do you see yourself as a threat? Why do you see people that look like you as a threat? Mm. So it's just one of you and she saw you as a threat. So you're doing the exact same thing. So these are the type of discussions. And so we will have a whole session on this and how we now change that mindset because, oh, you know what? They could be just a random guys going to football. Do you know what I mean? But because we don't know them, it's already this defense mechanism has come up, whether you're scared or whether you're ready to fight. Mm. Either way, it's negative, no? Yeah, it's a negative narrative. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so um, so those were the kind of things. Social inequality was another thing that came up in regards to what we used to talk about in regards to um, sort of different areas. Why don't we hear about these things in Richmond or Chiswick and all of these other places? Why are they in specific <laughs> demographic, <laughs> geographical areas? Um, and so these were the centre of conversations. And I guess in regards to fast forward into how that eventually became um, writing that to become a book, um, one of the young ladies who helped me set up this workshops, uh, tragically, she lost her life. 2010, April 16th. I'll never forget the date. She was in a chicken shop with some friends and um, some other guys from different area came into the area and then shot. Hoxton? Yeah, Hoxton. I remember yeah. this. And Agnes? Then shot, and, yeah, Agnes. Yeah. And then she took a bullet to the neck. Okay. Um, and she held on for two days and she died the following day. Um, so that was hard for yeah. the area yeah it's hard for people in general um even one of my teaching assistants that in my college now she's new i remember she said she's about 25 26 agnes would have been sort of that age right now mm. and then she used to go to school ega in, in angel and then she said that that shook the school because being girls that same age mm. it's like like we're supposed to be far removed from that, yeah, yeah, whereas yeah. we can become victims as well. So that was just hard in terms of trying to get over that. And then it was like, okay, once you're able to sort of recover a little bit, it's like the message can't stop. It can't just be here anymore. Mm. It can't just be in our youth club. 
And then the only vehicle that I had at the time was being able to write. I was not, I'm not a comedian. I'm not a rapper. I did poetry, but like rap is rhythm and poetry, but I didn't have the rhythm part. So I wasn't going to force it to try and be a rapper. It's just, but I could write creatively. And so I was like, okay, everything that we spoke about in these workshops eventually became a chapter in my first book, which was called Consequences, Breaking the Negative Cycle. Mm. And I called it Consequences because of that, action or thinking before you act is removed from a lot of people. And so I remember different situations like we spoke about earlier in my life that I had to think of the consequences. Like this is a lose-lose situation if I go on this move, like it doesn't make any sense. Who loses out? What's the consequences? That ambition I left for myself, for my mum, my brother goes out of the window. But all of these things are flashing in my head very quickly. Sometimes you've got a split second to make a decision. A lot of people make these decisions based on fear. I don't want to be called moist. I don't want to be called a pussy. I don't want to, sorry if I saw no, you're fine. <laughs> no, no. Um, all of these things. And then... You're saying BBC fans. <laughs> it gets people in <laughs> no, trouble. No, come here. You know? <laughs> it's what gets people in trouble. Yeah. Even, uh, you know, it's like, I remember my first points to driving was because I was doing someone a favour. Mm. Oh. Do you know what I mean? So imagine being in prison because you you was doing something you you know didn't really want to do because you're trying to help somebody yeah, else yeah. or whatever That's, else the situation tends to be is. the case. A lot you of know? people end up in jail because exactly they're doing a favor. You know, someone. Yeah. and so these these are the consequences that I thought about, and I was like, okay, the subtitle needs to be my first thought walking into this youth club as a volunteer, and I was like, this is a negative cycle. So I was like, let's break in the negative cycle. Became the sub the subtitle to it. My next book came about during writing my first book. I was writing this book and I had my my daughter at the time while I was writing my first book. Mm -hmm. I pretty much wrote this book in the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 p.m. For three months. 4 a.m., sorry, yeah. for three months. And it was a routine between me and my daughter. She was probably about six months at the time. Yes. She would wake up, yeah. I'll feed her, and then I'll write something and then it will click to me and I'll put her back to bed. And then I remember at this point, these two words came to me, ambitions and deprivation. Didn't really know what it meant at the time, but I put it together and it was like ambitions of the deprived. And I locked it down and I put it in my safe. Didn't know what it meant. Mm. And that was it. So that was for about three years. And then 2014, I was like, I need, I want to write again, but I don't know what. I, I've said everything I needed to say in the first book. I'm not just going to write another book for the sake of it. But then I was like, I remember I can tell stories. So now I don't have to speak from a non-fiction perspective of just like a bunch of essays. Now I can create my own narrative. And the narrative that I used to see on TV a lot was the narrative of painting us as drug dealers. Mm -hmm. Paint, like all the negative stereotypes that mm. already exist. So I'm like, how do I change this narrative? And I'm like, what about the stories of all these other young people, the vast majority that live on these estates, mm -hmm that have ambitions, that want to do something, but can still be affected by the issues of what has been told in the mainstream. Yeah. And so that's when I wrote, went back to that title and I was like, that became the title of the book. It was called Ambitions of the Deprived. And it became a story of four friends who made a pact to help each other succeed no matter what. And then when one of them gets caught up in a sort of joint enterprise murder, mm -hmm. just being there, not involved in it. so it kind of takes, the story kicks off from there in terms of it becomes a story about friendship. What does friendship really mean when you're 17, 18? Because mm. a lot of people believed 
friendship is about who's willing to back me in beef. Mm-hmm. Just because he ran away from beef doesn't mean he's not going to go and check in on your mum. Yeah, the guy that's yeah. going to back you in beef, has he ever called your mum when you're not around to see how she's doing? So what's your parameters of friendships? Mm-hmm. So that's what I want us to question in this book for that age group. Isn't like, what is friendship? What does it mean? Um, and so that's what that book was about in regards to all their personal journeys. So each character had an in-depth story about um, their motivations, the struggles within their families, linking it to their friendships and everything else that's more of a backstory in terms of what's happening in the area rather than what's on the mainstream, which is normally sort of concentrated on in terms of what we normally see. And so that's what I wrote in terms of Ambitions of the Deprived. And so, yeah, that's probably one of my favourite books out of the three, to be honest. Mm. And then the last one is called My Sister's Pain, which is totally different. It's um, I was inspired when I went to Holloway Women's Prison to give a talk and when I was in there it was not the inspiration didn't come on what I said it was the opportunity to sit down and listen to their stories and what mistakes put them in that situation you know and um, hearing the stories of domestic abuse and people doing stuff because of boyfriends husbands or even self-defense and all I can think about was the pain these women are suffering but more importantly, the the sisterhood that was so strong in her in a place that is normally deemed to be negative. And I'm like, this is powerful because all these women have these attitude of, if you're about to be released, we hope we never see you again in the nicest possible way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? If that yeah, makes yeah. sense. So the, this sense of sisterhood and then now having two younger sisters, I remember being at my parents' house and I'm seeing my sisters um, thinking, I wonder what their relationship would be like when they become adolescents or when they go into womanhood. And then in that moment, the plot for this new book came in. Um, But the characters would be women, two sisters. Obviously, being a guy, I was worried about the feminists. Like, why is this guy writing a woman's story? Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke to my editor who happened to be a woman. And she goes, no, genders cross all the time. People are able to tell any stories. Um, that they want to and she said something like if you go back to African history when they used to be around the campfire whether the grandma's telling the story or the grandfather's telling the story forget about the storyteller did you get the message mm. and at that point I was like yeah I'm definitely going to write the book but I just need to make sure I do it justice and then yeah, I interviewed about 100 women Wicked. to make the book as authentic as possible in regards to like every little thing I'm like what do you do in the morning like what cream products like how do you comb your hair Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean what do you go through your mind when you're on a first date when you like a guy when you don't like a guy how is it going all of these things so obviously inserting all these nuggets throughout the book um, a lot of women would then be saying is you know what it's like they had to keep flipping to the front to like reassure themselves oh wow a guy wrote this Mm -hmm. because that's what I wanted from from the book and so that's the story of my journey in terms of writing and using that as a tool to inspire more young people and to tell stories um because another african proverb would say i'm Ibo, so like our people tend to just use proverbs to send messages <laughs> so um i just i end up being like my dad now where he used to say um if the if the lion i'm just trying to remember how it goes if the lion doesn't know how to write, the story will always favor the hunter. Mm, I like that. 
So yeah, that was a powerful thing. So for mm. me, that's when I when I heard that, I'm like, all these things that are happening in my head, I have to write them down. Um, and I guess the piece that I missed was the gatekeepers. And when I say gatekeepers, I mean publishers. Mm -hmm. You know, with my first book, it was about passion. It was about dedicating that to Agnes. So I invested my own money, editors and all of that stuff in that. With my second book, I thought, okay, let me reach out to the people who can get it to the masses. Mm. Because the first one wasn't easy. Like, it's like, you know, being an independent musician, you're selling CDs, I'm selling my books on every speaking gig that I have and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's a hard grind, especially publicity and getting it out there. So I thought, you know what, if I can get some help with a mainstream publisher, this would be great because I think this story would work well. But pretty much like everyone I wrote to or sent them, you know, the first three chapters, you send them a blurb, synopsis and all of these things, wait your six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks and then... I just kept getting all the rejection letters, rejection letters. And then I kept the manuscript in a cupboard for about six months. And I was like, you know what? No, ownership. Mm -hmm. Remember Masterpiece story mm -hmm. in terms of how they, you know, grinded and just released their own things if nobody else believed in them. So I was like, you know what? You have to make it happen. Even if you have to give away the books mm -hmm. because the message is powerful, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's what I did. I sold my car um, to, to raise up the money to try and make this book better than the first. Because like I said, I was 24 when I did the first, I was rushing, the editing wasn't on point. There was just so many errors. I can look back on that first one and kind of cringe a little bit. So with this one, I was like, no, I need this to be in Waterstone and not look out of place, mm -hmm. you know, and that costs money, you know? And so professional editors, interior designers, three, four editors in terms of editor one, editor two, and a proofreader, all of these things invest, you know, and so it cost me a lot of money, but it's an investment that I was happy to, happy to make really. I'm just going to ask you three last questions that we Shoot. tend to ask every guest. Okay. So the first one is what is the three top values that you bring to your business, your, or your workplace? Um, three values. For me, I would say um, integrity. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's important because without that, it's it's like you're you're up for sale, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? It's like you don't really stand for anything. You have to have that sort of intrinsic integrity about yourself, um, and being honest. Honesty, a lot of people always link it to being honest to other people, whereas honesty people lie to themselves more than they lie to other people. So you have to be honest with yourself. A lot of the times people make ambitions, people make goals that are not realistic. They're, they don't, they know they're not going to do something. You have to be honest with yourself in regards to if you're saying you're going to do something, you have to really want to do it because in the in the back, back of your mind, you know that you're not going to do this thing. So you have to be, you have to be honest with yourself. And then if you can't be honest with yourself, then you're going to be dishonest with everybody else, to be honest. Um, and I would say courage, cool. courage, because I think it's self-explanatory, but you have to take risks. You have to take those steps because some of the great minds in this world wouldn't have achieved what they achieved without taking the risk. Mm. Um, and same with myself, I was able to take the risk, not knowing if I was going to sell any books or not, um, 
especially in this day and age where everything is competition. You know, you can make an album and or make even this podcast or whatever creative thing you're doing. Somebody can just plug in and listen to this while they're doing something else. Mm -hmm. Whereas to sell a book, you're buying somebody's time literally because you can't do nothing else but read the book unless you're creating an audiobook or whatever. But that's a lot of time somebody's investing in your work. So for me, it's, yeah, it's it's something very powerful. And so, yeah, it's definitely courage to be able to to go ahead with your actions or your ambitions that you've written down and that you've spoken to existence and you have to make it happen now. Cool. Next question being, if you had three realistic wishes, what would they be? Three realistic wishes. Um... I guess in re in relation to my work, I would like a lot more exposure mm -hmm. um, for my work. And Ambitions of the Deprived needs to be a film or a series. I've spoke that into existence. Sweet, that's dope. And, um, and I know why I say that again, going back to that narrative line that we spoke about. Um, and that's something that I'm sort of been looking into sort of the last two years. Um, but it's a whole different industry in regards to how that operates and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, but that's something that I'm definitely sort of. You put it out there. So always in the back there. of my, always in the back of my mind. Um, financial stability for the family, because mm -hmm. they always say charity starts at home, begins at home. Mm -hmm. um, I've always felt like I've done a lot for people outside, and sometimes. I'm still on that journey of retiring my mom. It hasn't ended, mm -hmm. you know? So it's it's like, sometimes when I go home, it's like, this woman's worked hard. I need to get there a lot more, a lot quicker so she can sort of enjoy the rest of her days type of thing, relaxing. And so that's always something in the back of your mind, even though you're, again, just pretty much like most people, I guess everyone's caught up in with what they're doing, their ambitions. And then all these things we've spoken about, especially with young people can, can just be left. Um, so yeah, that's something that's always at the back of my mind to obviously to continue to be on the front line helping, but making sure that I still do what I can to be able to support um, the family here, as well as the people that are in Nigeria, obviously going back home, um, being blessed and privileged to be here, um, to be able to, you know, to live and to earn, but seeing how people are struggling in a different way. Yeah. So again, like that kind of finance is not for myself, because growing up, it's different. I remember I used to think, oh, I want I want this car, I want that. But now when I think about money, a lot of the times I'm cal You know when they say never calculate money that you haven't received yet? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you tend to start spending money you haven't received yet. So I tend to do that a lot, but not because I'm thinking about myself. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you was younger, it's like, oh, that car would be nice and stuff. It's more about how much I can give this cousin because of this business they told me about and these things. And I don't know, that's just the way it's been. And I just find that satisfaction we've given. And if people around me are nice, then I can indulge in the finer things in life. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like we don't yeah. want to, but I would never want to, if we were brothers or, you know, boys and I went out and I was doing really well and I'm the one that's always paying, that, that doesn't make me feel good. Like mm -hmm. if we were all, if we were both on the same level, do you know what I mean? You can flex yeah, with your yeah, chest a little yeah. bit. Do you know what I mean? And that's what success is. Success yeah. for me is not individual. It's it's family based. Mm -hmm. It's people around me based. Mm. So yeah, that's that's that. Um, was was that the question? I think that was three. Yeah, that was three. Yeah. Um, the last question being, uh, what three books could you not live without? 
Oof. I was going to say, should we exclude his three books he's written? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so... The Richest Man in Babylon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Tom Burrell's Brainwashed, because that opened a lot of my thinking. And... I'm torn between Nelson Mandela's autobiography and Malcolm X. But I guess more linked with, I guess, the African element, I would probably go with Nelson Mandela's autobiography in terms of that the impact it had on me at that time as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those. Hope you enjoyed that. Next up to come on the Fully Book Meets platform was Sule Muhuddin. Very interesting brother, very political. Um, and what I liked about him was that he almost had this two two tears to him. He had this kind of, this nine to five working focus. But outside of that, he had the kind of Sule rap poet where he kind of done spoken poetry and spoken word. And he even blessed us by giving us a quick performance, which really took us back. So, Sully, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, we've brought you down here for a reason. I don't want to give that away to the, to the listeners here. I want you to explain. What, tell, me, well, tell me a little bit about yourself so the listeners can, can, can gauge. Yeah, I'm still about. trying to work out that reason myself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Suley, Suley Mahedin. Mm-hmm. That's my government name, my official name. Yeah. Um, some people call me Suley, we're a poet. Okay. It's basically because I'm a poet. Yeah. But my poetry is mainly inspired by rap. So it's kind of like bridging the gap between... William Shakespeare and Jay-Z. Okay. So it's poetry that's influenced by rap. Mm-hmm. Um, but spoken word, really. But I just okay. want to call it that because it's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... How long have you been doing spoken rap or spoken word, spoken rap? In a professional capacity, about five years. Five years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but before that, I used to... I tried I tried out being a rapper, but it didn't work yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, Well, you certainly all used to wear the clothes anyway. Baggy, <laughs> not baggy enough anyway. <laughs> I had the image, the full nines, everything, yeah, you know. I remember um, that. Yeah, it didn't really work out, so I just yeah. kind of adapted and became a poet. Um, but that was on purpose, though. That was an intention and, okay. um, choice because it was more about being heard about what you were saying rather yeah. than, you know, people just listening to you for the turn up or whatever, the vibe, you know. It was yeah. more about the essence and the message that you wanted to communicate. And for me, rap <coughs> and music was the best way of communicating that. Um, on this podcast we speak, it's based around books. So we're going to kind of get into it a bit later. But mm. what's your relationship with books and the, the creative side of it? Yeah, that's it's funny because I think when I was younger, I never really engaged with books. Um, and I think that's mainly based on the influences that I had around me. Mm. Um, I didn't know many people who were like, hey, I'm reading this cool book. You should check it out. You know, mm-hmm. it was more about films and, you know, all this new music uh, album yeah. and so on um, but I grew into it myself just kind of like finding my own interests and I think the things that we read um, come from the things that we want to learn more about from our curios- curiosity um, and when that's not instilled in you when you don't have a curiosity for something um, that you're really interested in it's hard to find that and to find an interest in books um, because the books that we're kind of showed in school are you know novels or you know, history books about mm. things that aren't even relevant to us, things that mm. we don't really care about. Um, but when you find that thing that you're 
passionate about and things that you want to build more on, then you find the right source to get that information. Mm-hmm. And I think once I arrived to that place, then I, then I started to find a real interest in books. And that for me is about self-help and motivation. Okay. Um, so when I found self-help books and I was like, wow, I didn't even know that this type of thing existed. Yeah. Mm. I was then, then I got really interested in like the Les Browns and the yeah. Tony Robinsons and the Eric Thomas and the Simon Sinek and all these people mm-hmm. um, that I'm really interested to read about. So um, what are you doing now in terms of like, I know you say you're doing poetry. What, what else do you do? Um, so, yeah, poetry is something I've been doing for a while. Um, I've managed to kind of translate <coughs> books or um, people's ideas or education into something a bit more um, accessible for people through poetry and spoken word. Um, and that's where kind of fundamentally what I do. Um and then the other aspect of that is um, I do political engagement. Mm-hmm. So I work with communities, uh, um, capacity building, um, galvanizing community, making sure that communities have a voice in the policies that affect them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I lead on young people. So for the borough that I work in, mm. I lead on young people for that borough. So making sure that young people's voices are reflected in the services that government deliver. Local government. Yeah, providing. precisely. Yeah. So tell me about how did the dots finally connect? How did when was the when did when was the first time you said okay something's happening here for me or you got your first kind of the first person reached out or you you kind of you kind of reached out to someone to say look I've got something special here that I want to show you. When was the point where you realized things were progressing? That's what I want to know. Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> I think yeah. One of the things I always say to other young people I work with is about taking time to reflect on your successes and your, and your journey because if you don't learn, you know, most of us take time to look at our failures and be like, you know, I went wrong here. How can I fix it? How can I improve it? But we also have to look at our successes mm. because if you want to replicate that, you have to know exactly what you did to yeah. win. Yeah. And so you can do more of that. Um, and that's something I didn't do when I was younger. And so I missed that opportunity to be like, oh, that's when it happened. Yeah. But I guess in hindsight, it's probably that transition from leaving home. I left home at 18 to go to university. Yeah. Um, and I never went back home. Yeah. Um, and when that happened, to get independence, to have a sense of autonomy, to find yourself, all these things that I guess, you know, when you move away from home and you go to university in a different city, um, we don't always think about, we think about the education and what you're going to gain from your degree or your master's or whatever. But we don't think about life lessons, you know, the things that happen that you can't just turn to your left and be like, hey, mom, you know, mm-hmm. or hey, dad, you know, things that you just have to deal with and become a man or become a woman or become the individual that you need to become um, in order to thrive in life. Mm-hmm. And I think when that happened, when I left home and I started to make my own decisions and find myself, that's when everything fell into place. Do you remember the first self-motivational, self-development, self-help book, which, because I, I can tell you're highly motivated anyway, but that might have, something clicked, or it, it, it's lodged in your memory for a, for a specific reason. 
Yeah. Um, I must have read like three or four self-help books leading up to this one. But mm-hmm. the one, the one that kind of changed everything for me, that put everything into perspective is Start With Why by Simon Sonic. Sinek. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard book. <laughs> That's a hard book. Um, mainly because I think it speaks to the internal me, like who I am internally. Um, you know, I believe in doing everything on purpose. I don't like just doing things for the sake of doing them. Um, and I think I always ask myself the question, why? Even before I read that book, mm-hmm. why am I doing this? Or why am I spending my time and energy and resources um, on this thing? Um, what's the payoff? Mm-hmm. What's the end goal? And I think Simon's book put that in a way that was so well articulated that it just, it, I just engaged with it, mm-hmm. you know? And I picked up lots of gems about how to apply myself and how to build on my why. You know, understanding your why is so important, you know? Um, and I think from that, that opened up the door to other people. So mm-hmm. all the other people, all the people I named earlier, um, in most cases, I, I learned about them after Simon. And mm-hmm. probably they're, some of them are more better known than Simon, mm-hmm. you know? I watched TED Talks. Yeah. So I discovered Simon from the TED Talk. Um, his TED Talk was Start With start and Why and Thinking Outside. So starting internally and then working outwards. So most of us have a process of what, how, um, why. You know, so what is this thing? How am I going to do it? Why am I doing it? But his process was why do I want this? How am I going to achieve it? And what is it? You know, um, which is just naturally how I think. And some of the most ins- inspiring figures that I look up to think that way as well. Um, and that's not something that I was taught, it's something I just had in me. Mm-hmm. And so when you find someone who, I guess, understands your speech, your language, and you hear that and you're like, wow, that makes complete sense. <laughs> and that's what happened with me and um, in that book. Have you ever come across definitely highly confident, highly motivated, ambitious? Have you ever have you ever doubted yourself? Have you ever had moments or elements of doubt that have crept in? And if so, what how have you managed to to to, to drag yourself out of that mindset? A lot of us do go through it. And I just wondered if if just from the way you're speaking, it's great, it's positive and it's powerful and it's motivating. But do have you does elements of doubt have they ever crept in? All the time. Okay. I doubt myself every moment, <laughs> every single second. I mean, you say something or you do something and then you immediately think, I could have articulated that better or I could have mm. done it in a way that was more powerful or, oh, I forgot to say that. Like, that's doubt. That's doubt yeah. could begin, but you have to just learn to reach a cutoff point and dispose of that. And Don't dwell. I'm a perfectionist. Yeah. I want okay. things to be clean. I want things to be perfect. I want mm-hmm. everything to be flawless. I want to impress myself, first of all. And then I want others to feel the effect of that, you know, because what we feel is contagious. Mm-hmm. What we say isn't. You never, like, you, you forget what people say, but you never forget how they said it or how it made you feel when they said it. Um, so, you know, again, it's about the states that you put yourself in. And, you know, if you're in a state where you want to learn and you're open to that, you're more likely to learn. But if you're in a state of, I don't want, 
mm-hmm. you're more likely to not get anything from it. If you're in a state of um, I'm not confident, you're more likely to exude unconfidence. Yeah. You know, um, so I always put myself in a state that I want to, yes. I, I want to be in. You know, before I go into any single um, engagement, uh, I say this to myself: How would the person I want to be do the thing that I'm about to do? Every time I say that, I said that just before I came through the door. Mm-hmm. And then I know that the state that I need to put myself in, I know that I need to put myself in a state that is, uh, that communicates confidently, that is clear, um, that isn't like, uh, 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 mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these things that, you know, um, that sometimes I am. All of us are, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah. So like, what dynamic do you want to set in the room? Like every single person that's walked into this room has set a dynamic. They brought an energy or presence that then affects you guys. You know, that either means that you guys are more interested to talk to that person or you're like, my gosh, when's this going to finish? <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think I think that helps. I think that makes a huge mm. difference. So yeah, no, I definitely doubt myself, but uh, doubting yourself, like everything, is a choice. We choose to be the people that we want to be. We choose to do the things that we do. We choose to say the things that we say. We choose to behave the, in the way that we behave. And those choices inform who we are ultimately at the very, at the very end. Just like how you look affects how you feel. How you feel affects how you think. How you think affects how you act. And how you act affects who you are and how people perceive you. Right? So uh, the thing, the choices that we have, the choices that we make... Uh, our decisions affect our behaviors and our behavior become who we are as a person and who we are forms our lifestyle, right? And so there are people who uh, habitually are the way they are mm-hmm. because they've been doing that thing so much, that behavior, they've been repeating that behavior for so long that they become that thing automatically on cue, right? And so the more you practice that behavior, it becomes a habit that then becomes who you are. And so I try and act out those traits and those behaviors that I know more of. And I try and um, get rid of the things that I don't want to be and the things that I don't want to do mm-hmm. um, on purpose. And all these things begin from one simple thing, a choice. Mm-hmm. And that's the power that we have as human beings. And that's what makes us humans, I think, um, that we have complete autonomy over who we are, if not other people. On that note, I guess before we tie up, do you have a piece of poetry that you could recite now? You're always ready. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, I fell into that trap, didn't I? (laughs) Set up yourself. (laughs) Oh, ready. (laughs) You set yourself. (laughs) Um, No pressure. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about. I, I'll leave it up to you guys. You guys decide. Motivation or self help. Um, I'd say motivation. Okay. So, what's your purpose? Are you living a purpose-driven life, or is life driving you without purpose? Through this journey of life, where we often measure our own successes by the standards of others, but you stand above others, a beacon of excellence, 
bringing hope to those in search of your guiding light. Yeah, we're all champions in our own rights. But you, you're the art of brilliance. And this, this is what happens when rare stars align. See, my mother always tells me that I have a bright future ahead of me. But of course, she just wants to see her son shine. What's true happiness if it isn't a state of fulfillment? And I want to capture every moment. Take a picture. Film it. Because I'm just a young man with a passion and a way with words trying to live out his dream. Because just a few years ago, Andrew, if you had told me everything I have achieved to date, it would have all been a myth. So it's ironic that I was standing at the Unicorn Theatre doing this. Life is no fairy tale. But it's fair to tell that this young protagonist prince wants to fare well, well. William Shakespeare said that all the world's a stage. And I'm just fortunate enough to have a captive audience to engage. Because see, just a few years ago, I didn't believe in miracles. But now when I look at my reflection like mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the greatest of them all? The miracles, me. I said I didn't believe in miracles. But when I look at my reflection, I see that the miracles, me. With self-belief, you can achieve and overcome any obstacle because it's the power of self that brings you up when you're down and have nowhere else to go. You say you're self-made, so you came from nothing to something. But that nothing meant something because it provided the fuel for this drive and so you strive. But where are you going? If you're driving in a car with no wheels, it's like, God gave us drive, but no will. Ill, see, that's what I at most fear. To be in disguise amongst the stars who don't shine clear. I said, that's what I at most fear. To be in the skies amongst the stars who don't shine clear. Being brilliant takes practice. You can't just reach out and grab it. It's a habit. So if someone's providing the tools to cope with the mechanics of being brilliant, then I think we all need to have it. Why do you think I wake up every morning and put on a suit? I'm in pursuit of my dream. You see, every line you come across just isn't what it seems. This is a role that I'm fitted for. To suit up and get to crafting whenever I seem stressed. Remember I said every line you come across just isn't what it seems. This is the role that I'm fitted for. To suit up and get to crafting. Seamstress. The world's our canvas. And with mine I'm trying to create a portrait to portray every last bit of my legacy. Until I stand with the elites. My sole purpose is to never see defeat. Yeah I could stand it all day and preach. But what's the motive of this motivational speech if it doesn't reach? So if this is the only time I get to stand on form and perform at the fully booked platform like this, I won't want to give it a miss. It's like I came up out of an abyss from underground rapping to this. Sheesh. They say it's harder for you to come up when you've come from the pavement. But I thought pave meant 
creating a smooth path for others to walk through. So if I do well, you will too. But let's not dwell on that. You do you. Because we all play a small part in a part that's part of the bigger picture. Small pieces to a puzzle, fitting into our parts, pulling together to become greater than the sum of our parts. Salute. So let's just dive into the last three questions. Um, what are the three top values that you bring to your business of work? Wow. That's a good question. Three top values. Um, I would say respect. Um, and that is about respecting yourself and respecting others and respecting the things and the environment around us. Um, I'd say self-belief. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really, really important in, 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 in yourself in terms of driving things forward, but also other people having self-belief. It makes a better team. And it creates a better environment for people to to do things together. Um, and thirdly, you can see I haven't thought about this before. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and thirdly, I'll say what's important is um, resilience. Say so resilience is really important in business mm-hmm. um, because without resilience, there is no coming back from failure or coming back from anything and mm-hmm. those things are inevitable those things are a part of life those things are part of business those things are part in everything that we do um so yeah respect self-belief resilience will probably be my top three for today tomorrow it might change <laughs> you know i'm flexible like that <laughs> <laughs> no that's good um second question being uh, if you had three realistic wishes what would they be That's a juxtaposition. Like you're saying realistic and a wish. Like those two things don't go together. <laughs> like, you know, realistically, I wish. Uh, three realistic wishes. For myself or for... It could be for either. It could be for the general population. It could be for yourself. Mm. Um. So this is a wish that I probably wouldn't have had before because I, I'm not a person that necessarily values money. Mm. But more recently, I began to see the importance of money. So, you know, I'm going to say money, lots of it. Mm-hmm. Um, not for the reasons that maybe the average person might say, I want money. Um, but I think for me to be able to do more of the things that I love and to be able to just do it freely, you have to have that capital to, be able to support yourself and others around you. Mm-hmm. Um being a responsible grown up, grown man now and stuff, you know, um, that would be uh, one of my wishes. Not in any particular order. Mm-hmm. Um, the other wish would be that we all have the opportunity to do the things that we want to do from an equal playing field. Um, so this is about equality, and it's yeah. about the points in which we start from mm-hmm. um, to be able to achieve this thing, things that we want. Um, so that would be my, my second wish. 
Um, and my third wish would be that we reconnect. I think, you know, when we talk about like the modern age and the digital age and the, you know, the, you know, the things that we've been able to achieve because of that, mm-hmm. you know, connecting, but also disconnecting because of it. I think connecting again away from these things um, is something that I wish that we had. Um, and I wish I grew up in that era. I think I'm probably the last generation who probably just kind of missed, you know, as as I turned kind of in my late teens, the whole kind of digital thing went crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so my experiences, I think, are probably experiences that no one else who's below the age of like 25 will have experienced, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I see, and I see the good things that come from, you know, the next generation, uh, which is Gen Z, um, and some millennials. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes you, I think people are some, a lot of young people are able to articulate themselves and connect with people better through a screen than they are face to face. I meet lots of young people who you think, wow, this guy's confident or she's very confident. And then when you meet them, it's like, yeah, Mm. you know, um, and I think, and I think that's, that's, that's sad because I think we connect with people and we buy things and we subscribe to things because of our connection to people rather than things. Yeah. yeah you know, I'm, I, I cannot think of one thing that I'm connected to, um, but I can think of lots of people mm. that I'm connected to, even people I haven't met just because you're Very from true. the country I come from or you like the same sort of music as I do mm-hmm. or you hang out in the same area that, that I hang out with. And mm-hmm. um, those things are connections that compel us to want to do things and to, you know, um, act out one of the things that we are in this planet to do, which is um, advance you know, uh, ourselves and advanced life on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm rambling again, but that is the third <laughs> no, thing. I, right. <laughs> I feel like I needed to explain that one, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like as clear-cut as like, I want money. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you explained it very well. To <laughs> me. Yeah. It made sense. Yeah. Last question being is, what three books could you live with, not live without? Uh, so three books I cannot live without. I'm going to start that way. Um is yeah start with why by Simon Sinek mm-hmm. um think and grow rich mm-hmm. by Napoleon Hill mm-hmm. um and I was gonna go thirdly by Simon Sinek again which is leaders eat last I love that book as well that's but, fine but yeah, it's I kind of want to mix it up a bit I want to give fine. other people yeah. an opportunity that's, you know that's... <laughs> <laughs> um Probably Psycho-Cybernetics by Something Maxwell, audiobook. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's really, really good. It's about uh, going back to the basics and breaking down everything that you are and starting afresh, you know. So how do you, you know, go through life growing up to becoming the person that you are and then realizing that this doesn't actually work for me, yeah. you know. Um, because not everyone is privileged or lucky enough to have the right parents for them mm-hmm. or the right friends for them um, to help cultivate the person that they mm-hmm. need to be. And psychocybernetics is about breaking down everything that mentally you think you know or you think you are 
um, and your views and perspective of the world and starting again from the ground up and then how do you build yourself back up? Um, and I think it's really, really powerful science in that. Um, so it's not just like, you can do it. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. think it, you can achieve it, you know, <laughs> which is great. I mean, I love all that type of stuff, but this is more kind of practical things that you can really, really apply on a daily basis, even for like someone who's a, you know, skeptic, you know, yeah. you can look at it and be like, I see the logic in that, yeah. you know, um, and that's the other thing, like, you know, we're emotional beings, um, we're biological, so we're not logical, we are, we are people of feelings, um, but this book is one of the things that actually put the, the bio in logical, mm-hmm. you know, and brings those two things together um, and makes a lot of sense to me. Um, books, I can... Yeah, that was you saw three. Yeah, yeah. You just want to keep going. Yeah, I just want to keep going. <laughs> you should start uh, <laughs> poetry. <yeah. laughs> nah, no, that was really good. Thanks, Sule, for joining us. Next up on our platform, we had Dr. Aria. Dr. Aria was another was very interesting. He focused on kind of the psychology behind um, losing weight, essentially, and he has worked with some really high profile celebs. He didn't name drop as such, but he has definitely has a big reputation within that kind of that kind of arena. Please take in his best bits. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, just a bit about you. You're a high performance psychologist. You're also a established author and a long term health specialist. Correct. Brilliant. Um, yeah, just just to kind of, we wanted to get a little about your story, then we can start asking about your your love of books and how it's helped you alongside your career and everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go ahead, please. So, going, going back, uh, I began training at medical school at Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and, and in the beginning it was all about really following the path of my parents. My dad was a doctor, my mum was a doctor, and I thought that was a sensible thing to do. I don't know if you guys have had it where your parents basically say you can be a doctor, mm-hmm. an accountant, or a lawyer. Or a failure. Right. If you don't do this Quite dichotomous. Yeah. Uh, and so I followed that route initially, but then my dad got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, okay. which is a type of cancer, and at the yeah. time the prognosis was quite poor. And I took a sabbatical, took six months out to spend time with him. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, he's still here today. But one conversation I remembered, he said, we were, we're in the hospital, actually down here in London at the Marsden. Mm. And he said, look, if you don't want to be a doctor, don't do it for me. It's important you find your own path. And that meant a lot to me. It was almost like that permission that I needed to hear at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I took time off, I began working for different charities and fundraising, I actually began training as an actor, anything to, I was just drawn towards doing things which I enjoyed or that I found meaningful and and through that path eventually I found psychology. Okay. And so I started off, I went and studied psychology at St Andrews um, and did a four year degree there and uh, had a scholarship to UPenn which is Ivy League in the States oh, wow. and that's where I met my co-author. Uh, for the Book of Mindful Year, mm-hmm. and then I did my doctorate in clinical psychology at UCL. Okay. Uh, and it was there at, yeah, it was there during the doctorate that you'd be working with people with anxiety or depression, uh, psychosis, bipolar, a whole range. 
but everything that connected it was, was the mind and it's remarkable how powerful the mind is and how it can influence the thoughts you have, the feelings that you have, what you do on a daily basis. And I've always been fascinated mm-hmm. with the mind. So you've been that we we if you know if you don't know we do a lot of self development books and yeah. it all tends to be mm-hmm. based around mindset. Um, one of our next subjects we're going to be doing is actually on psychology. Really? Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if you may have heard the book. Um, what's it called? A the psychology the psychopath test. The psychopath test. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to be discussing things like that. Um, in the field that you've you've done psychology, um, do you come across I guess extremes of psychopaths, so to speak? Yeah, so it's interesting whenever, even when we look at the, you know, the term psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um, so psychopathy isn't necessarily a clinical term. Uh, we have um, different personality disorders which are which are similar. But I think what it really <coughs> looks at is that some people have l- very limited empathy. Okay. Oh. And what's fascinating is that there's a part of the brain that is responsible for empathy. Mm. Now, if your brain is structured in such a way that you don't feel empathy that you aren't able to connect to what someone else might be thinking or feeling that you can't put yourself into their shoes what's always amazed me is how that really brings into then the question of free will and responsibility because if you're unable to be empathic naturally your actions are going to be led down a certain path and I think I think often what when you look at some of the data, what often differentiates people that go down a road of potentially uh, hurting others and being you know destructive force, and those which are highly functioning within society is that when they're being brought up, they've got at least one positive source in their life. You know, it could be a caring parent or friend yeah. or teacher in order to guide and direct them, mm-hmm. and so so much of it. For me, what's fascinating is so much of, of where we are today is from the accidents of birth. It's factors which are completely outside of our control. It's to do with the family we were brought up with, the religion that we were taught, the, you know, the amount of money that our family had, the opportunities we were given, uh, the way that we we're taught to relate to people. And so some people, unfortunately, are given a harder deal than others. And, and I think whenever we realise that and we appreciate it, we can, we just, the judgment drops because it's not, one person isn't a better person than another, one person isn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing better than someone else. We're all trying our best and we're all finding ways to improve ourselves. But there is scope, the good thing is there is scope wherever we are to take one step forward, you know, on a mental level, an emotional level, a spiritual one. I was, yeah, I was going to ask you in regards to that. So if you come from a uh, less fortunate background and yeah. the mindset that you've, the environment you've, brought, you've been brought up in is negative, yeah. do you think that that mindset is set or can it be moulded to be positive in terms of reading the right books, having the right conversations, or is it a case of they've grown up in the environment, mm-hmm. it's a set thing now, that's their that's their they've got no emotional feelings and having empathy and things like that. Yeah. Science has been handy in that regard. So we used to think that the brain it has a, a period of growth where it will change the most, mm-hmm. potentially up to the age of seven. And then after that, it might be set in its ways, so to speak. But actually we know that it's, so it's called neuroplasticity. It's the ability of the, of the brain to change. That is 
a quality that our brains have continually. Mm -hmm. So no matter what age you are, no matter what stage in life you are, there is always potential to create a new neural path in your brain, which is a new way of thinking. And when you have a new way of thinking, it can open up then new behaviors and new actions. And so while we might be dealt a really difficult uh, set of cards, we can train the brain to be able to, instead of just reacting out of emotion and reacting out of anger or fear or a sense of in, injustice at the hand we've been dealt, instead we can find a way of responding you know, more effectively or efficiently or with more wisdom or compassion towards yourself and the people around us. I was going to move on to like how being a top performance psychologist, yeah. how do you get, how do you almost find someone's baseline and build them up from, I guess, not to say your dad's situation, but yeah. just uh, your average person that may be in a rut, so to speak, yeah. and they're feeling down on their luck and they want to, their mindset is, it's almost in a cycle. It's like, okay, I can't get this job because I can't, I haven't got these qualifications or I haven't got this experience or whatever it may be, but yeah. it's a constant cycle. So how do you bring them out from a level of being down to, to being a top performer? Yes. Just before you answer that as well, yeah. just because it's going to add to French's question. Mm. And how also are clients refer to you or do you, do they seek you out? How does that, how does that work as well? How does it, how do you, how do they, how do they come into contact with yourself? Yeah. And then go on to, on to <laughs> yeah, finish this thing. <laughs> That's good. So I could, I could explain how, how it sort of developed. Yeah. Uh, so my doctoral research was on sustainable weight loss. I was looking at what are the psychological processes, what are the behaviours involved in losing weight and keeping it off? Because the data over the last 50 years shows that essentially any diet can work temporarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you're a low fat, low carb, uh, initially people lose weight, but then they gradually regain any lost weight and up to two thirds regain more weight than they lost initially. And so I was involved in uh, the first scalable weight loss maintenance intervention trial in the UK. And I was interviewing participants and finding finding out what is the, yeah, the psychology involved. And from that, I built a model a three-part model to understand what people go through. And the university uh, were very encouraging and said, why don't you try using that with clients? And that's where it started. And then I began working with often people who were extremely successful from a career point of view, Mm. but they'd lost that sense of balance and their health had suffered or or even their relationships had suffered. And actually, while initially it began as weight loss, what came up much more was building up emotional resilience, being able to understand how your mind affects what you do. And it sort of, you know, we'd started off with weight loss, but then it would go to health in different ways or relationships or, or their work and then being able to find a way of living in the moment so that they can improve their performance. So now I work across sustainable weight management and then and high performance for people that might their weight isn't an issue, but what they want to do is be able to push the needle and understand how their mind might be holding them back in terms of self-limiting beliefs or emotions are getting in the way. It could be for an actor preparing for a role 
or a sportsman uh, wanting to be at their peak mm -hmm. or uh, someone in finance wanting to have more clarity and calmness to be able to perform when it comes to a fundraising or, or whatever it might be. But the key, go back to now what you're asking, the key, oh, and in terms of referrals, now it's generally, because I do quite a lot in the media for uh, magazines or podcasts yeah. um, or word of mouth, someone's worked with someone who then recommend okay. uh, me on. I, um, yeah, I don't have Facebook ads. <laughs> 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 and then the key is to appreciate that we're all at a different stage and it's, and it's starting wherever we are wherever we are right now. And I'll take a twofold approach. One is understanding our mind better. Because one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that we have a thought and we instantly take it to be true. So the mind actually has a mind of its own. It's constantly coming up with ideas, judgments. It's like a running commentary. You know, you're walking down the street and it'll come up with ideas of... Just to cut yeah. you, would you say that's ego or uh, a separate mind or mind, your mind's mind as you just explained it? Yeah, so you could have you could have different you could have uh, different labels for it. You could call it the ego, um, which is more of like a often a sort of Freudian um, heritage, mm -hmm. or even just looking at it from the point of view of it being uh, yeah from cognitive theory. It's like an internal running commentary mm -hmm. and it's always there and, and we always have it. Uh, you could be in a conversation, but then you're thinking about something else or, you know, you see, you see a, a picture and it reminds you of a memory or uh, can you relate to that kind yeah, of running 100%. commentary? Yeah. I mean, you're saying things, you know, I'm going to use this, use Robin Williams as an example. I hope mm. I got his name right. And I was thinking you're, you're conscious of this, let's say this other voice, but then another voice or that voice becomes empowering with negative thoughts. Is there a danger of those thoughts taking you to a place where you really shouldn't be or shouldn't go? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and the, the key is, I think it was Socrates actually, we'll, we'll bring it out, philosophy said the art of an educated mind is to be able to entertain a thought without believing it. And, and you know, these are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Drop that big mic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's as simple and as difficult as that, mm. because we just, we easily go into it. And a lot of the time where people struggle is whenever when the thoughts when the thoughts get dark and they get depressive and they get and we all have dark thoughts we all have messed up thoughts and we all have thoughts which we'd be ashamed to tell someone else about yeah, yeah. i've got those yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> totally we, believe me we know <laughs> yeah. we know yeah. Yeah. i'm in there too i'm in there too i've i've gone through difficult times in my life where my mind has come up with suicidal thoughts mm -hmm. And knowing that, or I know though that when my mind has come up with that, it's because it's trying to find an out. It's in pain mm -hmm. and it's trying to find a way out. Now, I didn't entertain those thoughts. I just could recognize, gosh, 
do you know what? I'm struggling right now. Yeah. I need to look after myself. Okay. I need to make sure I have more sleep or I talk to someone or maybe I would, you know, I need to go to therapy or I need to speak to someone close to me or mm-hmm. eat well or just look after myself. For someone else, they might have that thought and think, I need to kill myself mm-hmm. and go down that dark path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, how would you direct someone if there was, if that's beside yourself, how would you yeah. direct someone that may not have the knowledge that you have in terms of, okay, I know it's a thought, I can see it's a thought, and I'm aware it's a thought and a thought only. Because yeah. a lot of people, as we know, act on their thoughts, especially yeah. men, especially yeah. young men. Absolutely. And it's a, it's, it's a big thing, as we know. We are statistically more higher to yeah. commit suicide yeah. than our female counterparts. Yeah. So what what would, like, tips would you give to, to anyone, any young guys that are listening that are maybe having those thoughts? I would be, like you're saying, find, finding, um, potentially finding finding books, even starting with, I don't want to promote my own book here, but yeah, even starting do. with like yeah. A Mindful Year, yeah. because it just begins to drip feed different ideas and <clears throat> different practices that you can take. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're already struggling, uh, there's a service called IAPT, which is, you know, increasing access to psychological therapies. I can know that. Yeah, so I'm a psychologist and, and by speaking even to your doctor or to speaking to someone uh, in case therapy would be helpful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but in terms of like tips right now, it just I, w- I would say just become familiar on a daily basis. I do it all the time. I just try and become familiar with the thoughts I'm having mm-hmm. and just notice them. The first step is just noticing it. Yeah. Noticing whenever my mind comes up with a judgment noticing whenever my mind says you're such an asshole like why did you do that <laughs> whereas before a couple of years ago i, I would listen to my mind and i would believe feel it. awful and believe mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. now i'll listen to it and sometimes i'll even laugh i'll be like oh my goodness that is that's intense bro <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then, so the, the first step would, just, would be aware of that. And then you can, you can choose to engage in it or not. And what you can begin to do is to develop another voice and develop a voice which is more compassionate and more constructive. Mm-hmm. And so whenever that voice does give you something negative to work with, just keeping it in check and saying, do you know what? Actually, the reality of what I'm dealing with right now is I'm doing my best. I'm trying hard. And sure, this I can I can work on X, Y, and Z, but actually reminding yourself of the strengths and the qualities that you do have, you know, bringing to mind when things have gone well, mm. or knowing that, even beginning to develop the belief, a belief that's really helped me is knowing that all will be well, mm. no matter what happens in my life, no matter how hard things get, no matter how big the storm is, no matter how much I get knocked down, no matter how much I lose to people closest to me or things don't work out the way that I want them to, Mm -hmm. all will be well. um, um, I was going to say, in working with, whether it's, um, oh, so you work with a wide range of people yeah. so whether it's sports stars or an athlete um, I can't think of uh, something on the other act actress uh, yeah thank yeah. you um, how do you know or when do you know or when do you think he's got it and he'll be alright from here I mean what's the the like I say an attribute or a sign that that person is finally um, has got it and is gonna I know he's gonna go on like a positive path there I say mm. different clients have different aha moments at different thank times thank you aha moments yeah 
yeah and and it's often very difficult to predict when they'll come or in what form they'll come but generally you can tell when there's a a sense of clarity and calmness that actually it's almost like it's almost like you're dropping the illusion of of any narrative which you've taken on because we all have go back to the internal commentary we all have a narrative about the story of our life and some of them are well they're all made up they're often taken from society that says we need to have X, Y, and Z to be happy, or from our parents who told us you are this type of person, or from a partner that um, shaped the way that we view ourselves. But you can see it whenever that person actually begins to to drop drop those stories which are unhelpful, and and they just feel more grounded, and they can see reality for what it is, and they know that whatever comes their way, they can then deal with it. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, in regards to being an author, mm. how did that come about? Because I know you co-authored the book, right? Yes. Yep. So whenever I was at UPenn, I had a professor called uh, Dr. Seth Gillihan, and we got on really well. And I'd, after classes, we'd often talk, and then after the the uh, course finished, we kept in touch, and we'd go for lunch, and we'd... Do you ever have that when you meet someone and you just hit it off, and you, you often have quite you know, deep conversations yeah. about life or mm. where you're at. These fellas. Yeah, these <laughs> boys, right. What we're doing right now. <laughs> and we kept in touch. And then he he came over actually to the UK. <clears throat> and we had this moment where we were on a walk and it was actually, he came over for, for my wedding mm-hmm. five years ago. And we had this moment, it was the day after the wedding, where everything seemed to make sense. You know, what was really important was clear to us. It was about family, friends, for me, faith. It was about appreciating the moment. It was about just even connecting with nature, like we're on a walk. It was feeling so grateful for life, for for what we had. And, you know, it didn't matter how much money was in our bank account, what car we're driving, how big our house was. None of that factored into it. It was just being present and appreciating these simple things. Mm. And we're talking about it. And then we also, we had this like little fear that we, we, we kind of knew, you know, in a couple of weeks though, we'll be back in the rat race. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be getting stressed about Wi-Fi not being fast enough <laughs> and uh, my cup of coffee not being at the right temperature and all these little things and, and trying to earn more, to be more, trying to think I need to achieve that in order to, you know, match where my peers are and, and all these things, which it's part of a different kind of journey, but really I don't believe leads to a deep sense of fulfillment and meaning in your life. Mm-hmm. And we kept on saying, how can we find a way to help each other? You know, just like brother to brother, how can we help one another? And eventually we came up with this idea, why don't we write to each other? So for a year in 2017, every day we wrote to each other, um, every other day. And we gave each other a quote, uh, a mindful passage. It could be related to 
philosophy or a psychology experiment or just uh, one of your brilliant ideas that came to your head. Yeah. About, yeah. <laughs> got a few things in it. Honestly. And and then an invitation, something very simple, digestible, accessible for that person to think about that day or to put into practice. And we did that for a year. And then we had this manuscript and then Blackstone Publishing in the States read it and said they really liked it and wanted to turn it into a book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're going to ask, ask the last three questions. So the first one being, what are the three top values that you bring to your business? Oof. I'm going to, I'm going to sound quite American now. Um, I would say, uh, I, I thought about this a couple of years ago whenever I was beginning to, to, to write them down. And initially I wrote down individual words. Um, so like authenticity or compassion or empathy. And now I've tried to make them a bit more, a bit more actionable. So one is be yourself. Mm-hmm. I think so often in life, so often in life we're we're often maybe trying to emulate or trying to fit into that mold of of who we think we should be of who we think our partner wants us to be or our parents or society and actually there comes great freedom and liberation from getting to know who you are and being okay with that and finding different ways to express yourself something jumped to mind when did you discover this poker Traveling. <laughs> Traveling. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> you got in him. <laughs> oh. There's no more for you to say there. Right? No, 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 no. Um, the other one is be to be truthful. Uh, you know, to be truthful to my clients, mm-hmm. uh, to my family, to my friends, to to myself as well, being totally honest. And because I think whenever, when we're truthful and we live in honesty, we've got nothing to fear. Mm -hmm. Fear comes from when we live in the dark and we begin to hide things or we begin to, yeah, be dishonest. But if you can really just be truthful, it is what it is. You know, we're all imperfect. We make mistakes and we can be honest about it. And then we can find a way to move on and to grow through it and to then, you know, become a better person and to be helpful as much as possible. If I'm in a situation, I try and remind myself if I can make the situation a little bit better, a bit more positive, mm-hmm. if I can, whether or not that's ordering a cup of coffee and being just being pleasant to the person that's making me a cup of coffee or smiling at someone or listening to someone or being, yeah, just making any situation a bit better than the way I, I left it. And I, you can take that to bigger degrees in terms of the impact we're having now in terms of sustainability on, you know, on our on our carbon footprint and, mm-hmm. and thinking about things on a larger scale, but even <coughs> just on a simple scale as well. Um, they'd probably be my three. Okay, brilliant. Uh, and what three realistic wishes would you have if you could? Three realistic wishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> mine are going to be completely random. Go for it. Okay. Um, so what comes to mind would be at school that people would be, that children would be taught more about their mind, okay. taught about psychology, about about thoughts, about emotions, being able to understand them. 
and just having a basic understanding of the way that our minds operate because I think we'd all be so much more empowered um, to be able to connect and particularly this notion of masculinity and what it means to to be strong you know there's so many cultural references of boys don't cry or we need to just um, yeah disconnect from our emotions and like you said that often then leads to much worse outcomes further down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, more education in terms of our mind. Um, random one, maybe an Instagram to get rid of so that no one could see how many followers anyone, anyone had yeah. or how many likes anyone has. That may be coming soon. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard <laughs> yeah. that it could be. Apparently it's coming, yeah. but we don't know. But it's a good realistic wish. Yeah, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be curious to see, does that change then what we post? We're not then hopefully posting less for external recognition and more just because a lot of people's career would be over though (laughs) yeah (laughs) true true well well and then for them my third wish would relate to them that hopefully that they'd find find their way by going traveling (laughs) (laughs) my man look at the time we all need everyone needs to go away Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to live it down. No, I love the timing. Awesome timing. I'm using that with all my clients. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should be traveling around the world. We'll be looking like, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess the last question is, yeah. what three books could you not live without? Oof. Um, so yes, I'd mentioned The Untethered Soul. Yeah. Uh, a book that I haven't read since I was a kid. But it was the first book that ever made me cry. <coughs> the Hungry Caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> that was the second book. <laughs> <laughs> was um, Of Mice and Men by John okay. Steinbeck. Yeah, it's like book. a novella, it's very short. But I remember it taught me about friendship, loneliness, and how how compassion can be can be hard at times mm-hmm. you know doing the right thing can be really difficult yeah it's a good book uh, and actually I read a, um, a quote by Steinbeck mm-hmm. once and he said if you understand each other you'll be kind to each other mm. and that's always stayed with me if I can understand what someone's going through mm. it's so much easier to be kind to them I like that mm-hmm. and the third one for me, would probably be the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I probably identify most with Christianity, but my father's Muslim. I really resonate. Buddhism really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a potentially a bit unusual. I, I see religions as different vehicles towards a greater truth. Mm-hmm. And you know, depending on where you're born in the world, depends often on what religion you're born mm-hmm. with. But they all contain different. Um, ways of achieving kind of sense of enlightenment Mm -hmm. but i found that through my through the most difficult times of my life by having faith and turning to god in some way that's helped me through um, my darkest times so last but not least and i'm going to apologize now because we're running short of time but fully booked meets daryl blake best bits off. Now, honestly, the whole thing was a best bit, but I can't cram two and a half hours into what I've got left. And to be honest, this we could have sat down for another two and a half hours with the brother because he really, really, really 
doctored us on what it means to ha- to be positive, to be black and positive, to focus on on black excellence, and to kind of build towards the future. Um, myself being black and just everyone's being black. So please enjoy. Today we've got a very special guest. Um, before I introduce him, I just I'm gonna list out some of the things I know you do. Historian, public speaker, researcher. There's about five things I missed, but I'm leaving that <laughs> gap for you, Mr. Daryl Blake. Thank Mr. Daryl Blake. Much. Thank you for joining us, Daryl. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So do you wanna just finish off what I was about to mention? What uh, else can be labeled next to your name? Uh probably mentor, yeah. uh, youth leader. Um uh, yeah, I don't wanna there's okay. not too many things, um, but those are the main things that I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, so one of the reasons that I've kind of brought you onto the podcast is I went I went to an event um, maybe about six or seven weeks ago and Johnny Pitts, the author of Afropean, was speaking at this event. So that's what first attracted me to the event. I heard about it through a, a mutual friend of ours. Mm-hmm. So I've gone down there. Um, I didn't realise, well, I knew there'd be a guest panel, but I didn't realise who the guest panel would be. Anyway, so after Johnny Pitts, the author of Afropean, has um, kind of finished his segment, there was a question and answer segment in the second part of the, of, of the evening. And Daryl Blake was part of, that, part of that panelist. And some of the questions and the responses I was receiving back, it, it intrigued me. And I said, I want to have a, a more in-depth conversation with yourself. Okay. Um, and I was like, okay, like, what, how can I find out more about this guy? So I think I, I briefly approached you. I know there was a lot of kind of... Um, like uh, people at the venue and everyone was kind of speaking to each other. But I briefly approached this, kind of gave you a brief introduction to what we do. And you told me you had another event coming up. You had an event coming up and I, sh- I could attend. So I researched that and it was um, the Dole Test, the reenactment of the Dole Test. Um, attended that event, very, very popular. Very, I'm assuming it was sold out. Yeah, Even, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a sold out event. Very popular in a massive hall, completely packed. Um, and it was a really, really good evening. Thank so you. congratulate you on that. Thank because you, I never got you. a chance to speak to you after about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, what I want to know is, that as, as I kind of briefly mentioned before we went on air, what we kind of do on Fully Booked is we love to speak about the kind of power and influence that books can have on individuals or how books can be used by individuals to motivate them to succeed, to drive more in life in it, or any kind of roles and responsibilities they feel they have to themselves or a community or to a wider audience. I want to get Daryl Blake's story today. So literally, <laughs> yeah. um, if you want to give a brief background into what you do, as in some of the things that I've listed out, but also how you've got there, how you've become the Daryl Blake you are today. I don't mind you going all the way back to childhood, where it starts. Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll touch upon subjects that I know you've you've got little palms and hands in. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this has been a long time coming since the... Uh, since we met up at um, the Afropean uh, book club mm-hmm. and um, and obviously we spoke briefly at the documentary uh, premiere in London. Um, what can I say really? In a nutshell, my journey has been about empowering my people, mm-hmm. empowering African people from the diaspora. Now, the reason for that is, is because through my childhood and I grew up, I grew up in Brixton um, and... I was kind of centered around community, centered around, you know, that feeling of everybody's your mom, everybody's your dad. Okay. And within that came knowledge, within that uh, uh, came responsibility and sense of like identity. You kind of knew who your friends were, but there was a sense of collectiveness when it came to 
not even when it came to race, because there was a class system. So no matter what race you were, what faith you were, you was all the same. Mm-hmm. So I'll be kicking ball with some of my white friends, some of my Muslim friends, some of my... It didn't matter. It was one family. And what brought about that was the sense of, do you know what? We're in this together. As I grew up, I started to get knowledge through music. So it was my dad who put me on uh, reggae music. Mm-hmm. And we were in reggae music came the knowledge of self, came the knowledge of I and I, came the knowledge of uh, blackness, came the knowledge of Marcus Garvey. Through uh, Black Uhuru, Bob Marley, uh, through Peter Tosh, I started to get into who is this this Marcus Garvey character. And then when I started to read upon Marcus Garvey, I was like, right, okay, this gentleman is powerful. Um, Marcus Garvey is a gentleman um, born in the 1800s he was born in Jamaica, but he was a Pan-Africanist. And Pan-Africanist is basically someone who believes in the continent of Africa and those outside of Africa and Africa's born within you. Kwame Nkrumah says, I'm not African because I was born there. It's because Africa was born within me. So he gets the ideology from pa- uh, Marcus Garvey, who was basically about it's Africa for the Africans. Mm-hmm. Um, now... When I had that knowledge, I was very young, but I didn't know what to do with it because it's like, okay, when I say young, I was like looking at about 11, 12, 13 at the time. It was my auntie um, who is a Hebrew. I didn't even know black people could be Jewish back then. (laughs) I can't be honest. But I always used to think like, why is she always dressed like that? Why is there no TV in the house? Anyway, so it was my auntie who put me on the idea of there's a higher power, there's a higher source. She made me fast. Now, my auntie, uh, love her to bits. She was the one that would, she wouldn't like Bible bash or anything like that, but she would like try and drop in a little, so what are you doing with yourself? Have you prayed recently? I'm like, nah, I'm not even praying, you know, I'm on the roads doing certain things. And um, there was one day she said, I want you to fast. And it was called uh, the atonement. It was in November. And, um, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was so crazy because I said, you know what? Let me do this fast and see what she's talking about. So I did this fast um, where it was like seven days where I couldn't have certain food. So I can only eat like egg, bread, could drink water, could have grape juice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's certain things I couldn't have. But that was what I stuck to for like seven days. After that fast, I can honestly say my life changed. Like I remember it was an instant where my grandma was ill on my mum's side and... Um, my grandma's from Coventry. We live in London. And my grandma was like, not well. She was in hospital. And my auntie was up there. I remember uh, my auntie was on the phone to uh, my mum saying, oh, uh, mum's kidneys have gone. Oh, okay, cool. Five minutes later, her liver's gone. <sighs> okay. So many things. Bah, 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 bah. And I was like, okay, grandma's going to pass away. Mm. So I went into the garden and I must have closed the door behind me. And I was like, um, this is like a little while after um, uh, I did the fast, like a couple of weeks. And I was like, okay, so uh, God, uh, Jehovah, <laughs> Esau, Buddha, I don't know who's up there, but if you could just spare my grandma for like a few months, because my mom is not financially good at the moment, let it just, you know, but if you've got to take her, so be it. But if you could just hold out a little bit, yeah, because my auntie told me I could speak to you like you're one of my friends. So 
I'm sorry if you think I'm being rude. This is I was talking in the garden by myself, and I was 14 at the time. Okay. So, and are you religious? Are you quite religious at this at this point in your life? I'm just more spiritual. Okay. Right. So, um, there was silence. I was like, okay, give me a sign. Silence. Mm. Okay. So as I turn around to go into the house now, there's a the next door's tree. It's a big tree. It was like going. It's going crazy. I was like, yeah, duppy. I'm out. I went into the house. Yeah, ran into the house. I sat down. I was like, oh my gosh. Ten minutes later. Mum comes running down the stairs. Grandma's awake. Da, 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 da. I was like, whoa. Went to go and tell my auntie. Auntie was like, yeah, because um, God has these open seas on the planet and it just takes for them to be watered in order for them to... But it takes that moment in time. It happens at different points in people's lives. Yeah. She goes, you was, when you was um, living in Jamaica, you was an open sea. Your grandma didn't. She just brought out so many things. I was like, wow. So I started to read more. Then I started to sit down with a few... Um, my Muslim brothers and they was teaching me stuff and then I went to the Rusters. They was giving me more lectures and then I sat down um, with a couple of Buddhists and they told me about the um, the importance of silence. That's why a lot of Buddhists um, take the oath for silence because there's so much power. And my brother says this, um, sound without focus is just noise. And that's why, like, when I go to the opera, I understand how powerful silence is because silence it gives you focus because if you knock out your ears, everything else enhances mm -hmm. like your all other senses. So, um, when I started to sit down with different factors, sitting down with um, Kemetic priestesses, these ones that I believe in, like, I don't use like the term Egyptology, but they they believe in Kemet and they started showing me about spirituality and then they gave, talked about the chakras. And I was like, so every year, like every other year, I was sitting down with different people, like mentors and elders, mm -hmm. and they was giving me the knowledge, making me read certain books. Tell me where to go, tell me where to go. Right, and also before you go on to that, and you and you mention any books that have influenced you in that sense, yeah, where I know you've kind of grown up and you you've sought out knowledge from Rastafarians, not just from Rastafarians, from all sorts of different mm -hmm. um, people and different who who have different beliefs and yeah. religions. But tell me, what has kind of led you to want to study and learn more about kind of Black history and kind of Black empowerment and these kind of things? What's led me? Um, it's literally just the information alone because when you're growing up and you're going to school and then let's say that like Black History Month and you learn about slavery mm. in like year nine. Black History Month, year 10, slavery. Year 11, slavery. You go to college, you might not even learn anything that has any blackness in it. But then it's Black History Month, so you probably see a couple of films on TV, but you might go to a few events, slavery, slavery, slavery. So when you hear that, you're like... Slaves. Until you pick up a book and it's like, do you know what? Like, we built empires. Mm -hmm. What? We created music. What? We gave the world math. Pie. We, like, we was the first people to actually write letters. We, I was like, what? Us? Huh? And because I'm inquisitive anyway, my passion is music and my passion is, like, philosophy. I'm like, what? Did we did this? So it made me want to read more because I saw myself. I saw a positive representation where it's not, okay, he's a black guy with a hood, so he's a he's a criminal. It's mm. like, no, he's someone who's capable of creating the internet by a Nigerian guy. Um, he's the one that created the perfect shoe so that we can all wear shoes on the street. Uh, he's also someone who, um, like, 
when you see the the street sweepers, the machines, mm-hmm. the, the guys that sit in the thing and they got the mm-hmm. brushes. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that created that. Mm-hmm. You look at CCTV, that's by someone else. Then you've got Jesse Russell who created the phone. And then you've got Shirley Jackson who created Caller ID. And then you've got the traffic light. Then you've got the gas mask. And then you look at all these people that create these things, you're like, we are some inventors. And where we invented these things are in spaces that predominantly do not like black people. So imagine you're being oppressed, you're in an institution that's pretty much racist, whether it's education, whether it's occupational or societal, and you're still managing to say, you know what, here's my contribution, I'm going to create something. Mm -hmm. Imagine creating a gas mask, right? And you create a gas mask, but the gas mask you created was not used for your people. So you create a gas mask, then there are racist people in Europe, like Germany, who then say, all right, well, we're going to have the gas mask, but we're going to use that mm. to save the Aryan race and everybody else who's not blonde here, blue-eyed, you're going to die. And especially black people. So you create something that wasn't even useful for your people. For us, yeah, for what it's meant. Do you see what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. but it just goes to show, like you were saying earlier, my resilience earlier, um, um, before we started rolling, like it's, it's the love that I see within ourselves, like despite all the things we faced, we're still loving people. Whether you're, no matter what faith you are, no matter what you've gone through in life, you are a loving person. It shows we're always acceptable, always like, okay, we always want to get approval from, we're just loving people. And that's been our own detriment as well, seeking the other and trying to be, when people are trying to take from us, we're just willingly going. No matter if it's educational, whether it's something to do with music or film or culture, like popular culture is based upon urbanization. It's based upon what happens in the streets and manifests out. Mm-hmm. That comes from struggle and that comes from you know, let's do something for ourselves. There's something that we can there is something that we can be proud of and let's just keep it within our community. And then we say, do you know what? We can offer it because someone's like, hey, can we come in? And we're like, yeah, sure, come in. We let them in, they take over, and then and we've been doing it for a time, and that's always been our detriment. Mm-hmm. We, if black people in a whole across the globe have created something like music, every genre of music there is, but we don't get credit for the music that's being created now. That's it's it's bad and it's institutionally racist, but we let it happen. We created dancehall, but most of the popular culture songs that happen today is based upon the same beat rhythm of dancehall. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we're able to let? people infiltrate or the kind of divide and conquer as they say and and kind of let yeah let our our kind of inventiveness be masked over and, and it's not kind of glorified or it's not it's not in the kind of public eye as much as it should be because we don't own and control anything that's what racism is racism is prejudice plus power so when we're in a state where we're okay so i'm rasta you're christian i don't want to deal with you you're muslim cool you're Ibo, you're tweet twice you're da 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 you when you're all these things that just creates the divide and conquer because you're, you're too busy worrying about yourself other nations have got it right i've been to there's something called the wage of whiteness that um malcolm x talks about meaning like even though when he's he saying this in harlem like back in the 60s saying even the poorest white person in Harlem is glad he's not black because there's something about being black. Um, the stigma. Right. Mm. So Black History Month is seen as, because there's nothing to glorify, because we don't have anything to show off, no one really wants to be black. 
I just do that generically. There are individuals obviously proud to be black, but as a whole, we're not proud to be black. Black History Month is like, yeah, we've got 31 days, happens to be the same month that we've got um, Halloween, cool. And there's this, okay, let's do this event, let's do that event, let's be proud to this, where are dashikis and whatnot. But then when it gets to November, everybody's just quiet. There's mm-hmm. nothing. It's like football. We become glory hunters. Like imagine watching football for the first time. And you see Messi play. It's like <laughs> I want to support Barcelona. He's on stuff. Like that's what it is. But you got to stop having blackness treated like it's glory. It's not. You should be wearing it every day and be proud. But when there's no representation of positive outcomes, when there's no representation of people that have been through the struggle, have made it out. When there's no positive positive representation in places of power, then no one really wants to be black because we're scared and because we don't build a community. We don't want to take the risk and stand out and be Malcolm X because we don't think anybody's going to care. Mm. And that's our own fault. Most of our issues are literally our own fault. No one, and that's the reason why there's no black power in the sense of like the the civil rights movement because no one's ready to die. I'm True. I'm all for my community, but I know if I go out there and start speaking, there's probably going to be like five or, f- five or six people that are going to be like, yeah, Daryl, and that's it. The rest of the people ain't going to do it. In um, The Art of War mm-hmm. by Sun Tzu, he talks about if you know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you're 50% in the battle and you've lost. If you know the enemy but you don't know yourself, you've lost straight mm-hmm. away. But if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you're always going to win. And a lot of us don't know ourselves. So that's why we're always losing. We're still and we're making the same, same, same silly mistakes because we haven't learned from the people from before us. That's why reading is so fundamental, especially when it comes to boys. So you have uh, Jawanza Kunjufu, this book here called Countering the Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys. This book here is sick. This guy actually looks like Drake. Don't you think? Like baby Drake back in the day. Look at Drake in the back in the day. He's baby picture. It's like Drake, right? But this book here, and this was from the 80s, I believe. Wow, I think this 80s, book is... And it's so relevant. It's so relevant. Right oh, second. I am telling you, he breaks it down in terms of... When it comes to this book, he talks about destroy black boys because black boys are seen as the go-to people to attack first because girls are they mature quicker and girls are seen as a lot smarter. When you look at the curriculum now, you look at GCSE results, African girls or black girls do better than... African boys, Caribbean boys, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the boys seem to be the one to focus on because they're the, they're the weakest link. You always go for the weakest link when you want to fight a battle. And he says there's so many things that boys have to deal with when it comes to masculinity, it comes to broken homes, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to so many different things, he says that they get attacked all the time and that's how they destroy it because if, if you destroy the man, just like on a plantation where they used to dehumanise a man by tying a horse to each side and then rip the horse and split him in half, Mm. Or what they used to do is get a pregnant woman, stand her on a block, and then they used to get other pregnant women and children around, then they used to cut her open and then have the baby drop out and then stamp on the baby's head because the people that are watching, it's going to create trauma. It's going to create that little bit of a hormone in them that's going to be infused into the baby, which then the baby's going to be born in fear before anything else. Mm. So when you've got these people that have got, they've got <coughs> tactics in order to get rid of people and to pump fear, they're always going to find a way to put it. That's why most of the adverts on, African t- on TV about Africa is... A, a baby with a massive stomach flies around their eyes just because you're like, oh, do you know what? I don't want to be attached to Africa. So you go to certain Jamaicans and you're African and they're like, why? Unless you're Rasta, it's like, why? It's because the vision of Africa has been so bad, which is about the miseducation of a Negro. So attacking boys was the first thing they wanted to do because if you attack the power, the power is in the men. 
The spirit is in the women. Spirit is in the women. Every revolutionary movement you can think of was because of a woman. You got the Haitian Revolution, which was great. And you had Toussaint Levertour and you had um, Dessaline and you had Bookman, but every single one had influenced by a woman. Dessaline was the soldier. He was just thumping up the French, dicing <laughs> them up. Like, you want to come here? All right, cool. Come, 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 come. We're going to hide in the bushes and then we're going to show you how we get down. He was then taught how to fight by his mother, African woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had Queen Nanny of the Maroons in Jamaica. She, again, was the one who was like, boom. He had um, Asantewa as well. He had Ghana when um, they was defeating the, uh, the, the English. Again, it's a woman with a shotgun saying, all right, it's on site, who wants it? She was one that's leading the team. Like every revolutionary... When you've got Martin Luther King and you've got him saying, I have a dream, when he's got that speech mm-hmm. and he's in the capital, you hear a woman, there's an audio you can hear where they try to mute it out but the original, you can hear a woman in the background because he's talking, he's waffling. He's mm. just saying what he wants to say. There's a woman in the background saying, talk about the dream, Martin. Talk about the dream. Then he goes. Yeah. And that becomes his prolific speech. But it's a woman in the background. The spirit, the essence is in a woman. The power is in the man. Mm-hmm. So when you've got the power and spirit together, you can't be controlled. It's, it's, you can't. So when you take it away, you have to take away the power first because women will fight. But if a man's in front, certain people are going to want to be like, whoa, maybe I don't want to rock it out with this person because this guy looks like he's kind of big and I don't really want any problems. So let me just stand off. So when you've got a black man protecting a black woman, it's, it's they don't want to see that. They worked their magic to separate that. They tried everything. They tried to separate the family by putting man against woman on the plantation. Then you tried to separate the man by throwing him in jail. Then you tried to separate the man by saying, do you know what? Don't cry. Don't be emotional. Don't even show weakness to your woman because if you do that, you're going to be a wuss and she's not going to like you. Then go to the woman saying, you don't want a man that cries. What's wrong with you? Like, he's going to see you. You're going to what? He's, what? You're going to not cry. He's going to cry. Like, what kind of... So then you had a separation where you had, you had a girl saying, women saying, do you know what? I don't need a... I don't need a man. I'm good for myself. I can protect myself. I don't need no weak man. Why are you crying for? Then you teach that to young boys. Like, they fall over and graze their knee. And most boys don't want to cry, but it's the fear of seeing blood where they're like you know what I mean? You know, little ones don't cry until they see blood. So then you say to them, don't cry, man up and be, man up. His balls haven't even dropped yet and you wanted him to man up. How? Because that's what you've been told. And then, so we don't have that security where men can express. And then men can say, you know what? I'm going to talk to you like a man to a woman, woman to a man and say, you know what? I've got some issues I want to deal with, you know, but I don't know how to deal with it. Let me get some of your light. Let me get some of your wisdom. So men internalise it. So then men get sectioned because of mental health. There are a lot of people walking around today, especially a lot of old men that are walking around with undiagnosed traumas mm-hmm. because they can't express. Do you see what I'm saying? Whether it's, I've been on the road and I've seen some... Ma- like, even if you had to lick down someone, mm-hmm. that's traumatic. If you had to juke someone, you've actually had to feel the blade going to someone's skin. Say you killed them. You didn't want to do it, but you just on stuff that day because you weren't breathing. Mm. That's traumatic. <laughs> then you go jail, you see some things in jail or something might have happened to you in jail. That's traumatic. Yeah. Then you come out and then you've got a, what you saved your time, you paid your dues, and then you must go back into society and do what? At what point did you get any healing? Mm-hmm. But then, if you go to jail, you're, do you know what I mean, five times more likely to go back in. So then you go back in, doing the same thing, boom. Or they say you do something, you don't go to jail, and you're just navigating around and just like you ain't, you can't express yourself. Mm. That's that's traumatic. Seeing some stuff like seeing someone getting shot, your bridge and getting shot, and he's there dying out. That's traumatic. That's crazy. But we don't even want to... Some people, when they watch adverts of sick puppies, 
Google it. There are people that have actually called this and can you take the advert down because it's traumatic. Just seeing a puppy, they're not RSPCA. Mm. It's traumatic. But they've, the way they've worked it is so we can be desensitised, is plugging it and saying, do you know what? Black people are two-fifths of a human being. That's what James Madison said. He was the fourth president of the United States. Mm. For him to justify having slaves, he had to say we're two-fifths of a human being, meaning if you go outside and you step on an ant, you're not going to feel bad because it's an ant. It's small. It's nothing. It's not, it's not a real person, so who cares? Mm. Or if it's a slug, you're like, ugh, but whatever. That's about it. So for him to justify slavery during the 1700s, he had to say human, black men and black women were two-fifths of a man. So now we still got that same mentality. Like if most people, if we was on stage and we had, um, no, it was an audience and I was doing like a presentation and I showed a puppy being crushed to death. Mm. Most people would cry and be like, oh my God, oh my days. And especially if you're not black, you're definitely going to be like, oh, what can we do? Who is that horrible person that did that, that mm. killed that puppy? And they would start to raise money, like out of nowhere. There'll be a GoFundMe page, <laughs> like there'll be like 50, 100K, like, Instant. Boom, instantly. <laughs> what can we do? If I show the slide and say this person just got, he was on his way home from school, got stabbed, 15 years old, Baptista, Stratford. People be like, man, knife crime's crazy. So anyway, all right, what are we getting yeah. for lunch? You know, man, yeah. ugly. <laughs> you say no one do anything. The fact that we're in a situation now in society where a life of a young person is not, take, is not taken as serious as the life of an animal, forget it. Forget it. So, yeah, so, um, you've mentioned about when you kind of give lectures or when, you, when you're teaching students. So yeah. what, what, I don't think we actually touched upon what do you actually teach? Oh, do you know what? I don't even have a structure of what I teach. I teach everything in terms of like, so if they struggle with English, my, okay. So where do you, okay, where? Can you, can uh, so you I, te- I teach in a secondary school. Yeah. In South London. Okay. Um, and I teach in a, um, like a Saturday school as well, I'd call it, um, in East London, in Forest Gate. Gotcha. Um, shout out to um, Eastside um, Academy, Eastside Youth Leaders Academy. They are fantastic. Um, and that's like year fours, year fives, six right up until, year fours to 11, but I've, um, only taught four to eight. I haven't done year nine, ten, eleven yet. Mm-hmm. But they brilliant minds, brilliant um, minds that are coming through. Some great politicians are on their way. I tell you. And secondary school, my one is like, I'm like an external mentor, but I teach like science. I teach English and maths. But what I try to do because ones I deal with are like they're on SEN, so special educational needs. Yeah, I've taught. Yeah. I've used to teach in that sector. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's about it's like all right. It's not about what you teach is how you teach it so I'm, i give them that sense of belief so if they've got work that they struggle with i try and give them an alternative way to approach it exactly yeah how mm. to look at it and break it down because how there's four steps in um how the system works against ethnic minorities so there's four, four things that work that they get tested for which is one which is um uh, it's called working memory um, how well do they remember what's going on? Processing speed, pro- processing speed, um, how quick they can solve sums. <clears throat> There's also um, non-verbal reasoning, mm-hmm. um, and that's about how well do they understand the work without actually doing it before. No prior understanding of how to do it. And then the last one is verbal comprehension, and that's where a lot of our children, especially black children from um, working class background, they struggle because it's about terminologies that they don't understand. Yeah. So they trip up on verbal comprehension and that's how they 
So they can't say you can't come to this school or you can't come to this college or university because you're black. So what they will do is that, all right, we will put it in the test score. So the racism is in the points. It's in the actual results. So every child will be good in the first three points. They can remember, they can process. Things. And, you know, I haven't done this before, but I'll be good at it. But verbal comprehension, that's where they trip them up. That's how they get it. It's like the word. So if you go to secondary school, you're in year 11 and you go to a secondary school in Halston, mm. right? And then you go to, another person goes to a secondary school in Richmond. The level of education may be the same, but you'll be, there's certain words that's going to be used in lesson. I went to school in Richmond still. Oh, is it? Yeah. How did you find it? Yeah, it was good. But do you know what? The school nearly got closed down. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a mad one still. Christ, Christ school. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's back open. It's still it's open. Stayed, it's yeah. stayed open so after a lot of us left. left. Right, right, right. But it's a good school now, isn't it? It's a brilliant school, school now. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah Christ. School now. Is it near yeah. Barnes? Was there Barnes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. When I was there, it was, yeah, it was a madness still. It's a phenomenal school now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally yeah, turned like, around. Because yeah, yeah. even like back in the day, I used to hear about the school. And the reason I know of this school is because so many expel children from other schools would end up there and it'll be a mix of South West yeah, South everywhere. and West yeah, yeah, yeah South yeah, yeah, and West yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. South and West still. yeah 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 it was a mad thing but phenomenal school you're telling me though but it's phenomenal now yeah they've wow. changed it up yeah it's, wow. it's, totally different. yeah yeah, yeah. Totally it's, different. It's, it's, they're on they're, they're doing bits now yeah. so the wording you might get in certain lessons will be different because the vernacular is different you've got a different level of teaching so a lot of black, che- black children suffer because they're not learning certain vocab as they would in another place. Mm. So that's how they trick them up. So when it comes to like GCSE's exams, it's like, oh, I don't understand that. You know how to do it, but you don't know how to get that. So for example, like you've got in maths, they will teach you like, all right, take this, mm-hmm. right? They will say to you, I want you to calculate rate times time equals distance. Rate times time equals distance. So I say to them, calculate it. They're like, how do like no nah, sir man like <laughs> you're, you're marking me off man like what, what are you talking about I don't know I'm like calculate it. and like, I don't know I'm like all right then so usually I give them like a tennis ball and they're like two people across the room so I'll do it with you see that two pound throw it to him but you have to catch it ready mm. oh one job <laughs> one job uh throw it back to him uh and throw it back to him and then throw it to me all right so I said, you just did it. Rate times time equals distance. They're like, what do you mean? So I said, all right. So the rate is the speed, right? The rate is that. The time is how long it's going to be in the air. So when you threw it, how do you know not to throw it and make it hit the door? How did you know? You could judge the distance yeah. between the two. Yeah. How? Yeah. See uh, what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> experience, experience. I guess experience. It's just yeah. like you know, you have you thrown a ra- rounders? Whatever you've have done. You, it. Have I, you thrown a two pound team before? Not a two pound. No, but to, I've, to I've, I've thrown something similar. I play pound up many a times. So Same bit, yeah. I know how to. You know, how to, you know what I mean. But how? Practice. Practice. But but how do you know? How do you know to get it right? From using your eyes, judgment, distance, and knowing what power you can use to put and towards going that direction. So if I know you're a, a metre away, then I'm going to use a certain amount of force for it to get to that oh, different um, position. There you go. Kinetic energy. Mm. So we always use kinetic energy, but when you read in the science book, it's like kinetic energy, like what? I don't, but you use it all the time. So it's like, you knew how to throw it mm. because you knew how long you wanted to be in the air for in order to land in that person's palm. Rate, 
times that, by the time it's going to be in the air, which is going to be like half a second, mm. and where it's going to land. Because you know, if you put more power into it, it's going to go further. So you've had to lessen the power so you have less time in the air so you can hit that point. Rate times time equals distance. If you do basketball, you know how to do swoosh. Mm. So you know how far you want the ball to mm. go, how long it's going to be in the air to get full swoosh. If it's off the backboard, that's an angle. So that's trigonometry. Yeah. You're doing yeah, angles. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you know how to do angles. Mm. What are you talking about? So they're like, oh, so I'm like, all right, stand up. They're like, okay, sit down. Okay, stand up. Okay, sit down. You just did a right angle. Your legs had to bend at a right angle for you to sit down. Mm. So when you say you can't do angles, shut up. <laughs> you know, like, you can do it. So it's not what you teach, it's how you teach it. Mm. So what I do is I break it down to a simple way. There's a guy that used to um, read a lot of his books, um, Dr. Henry Clark and Dr. Ben Yakunum. Them two are, like, the leaders of, like, like this wouldn't most of the books that you hear about that people read like you probably hear like um, shout out to like a Carla like he's yeah. read a lot of Dr. Um, Henrik Clark's books as well and these two individuals in terms of like knowledge and African centered knowledge they are the ones that said do you know what if you can explain something difficult to a seven year old child mm. that's intelligence mm -hmm. when you're speaking about these big words like you're my epistemology and my ontology and Good, mm. but if you can't explain it to a seven-year-old child, it's not intelligence. So it's about it's about getting like the most difficult sum, just simplifying it. Who cares about how big it is? You get, if you trip up on the verbal comprehension, you're gonna lose because they created the language and we don't. Do you see what I'm saying? And especially if we're moving like this in vibration, mm -hmm. like technically we should be learning to music. Everything, anything said over a beat goes into your subconscious, whether you like it or not. I know you normally have three yeah, we last questions. Yeah, we finish like off with three questions. Uh, I'm going to ask them to you. No, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the first one is, uh, <laughs> what three values do you bring to your business or place of work? Love of self. Mm -hmm. Love of family. Mm -hmm. And I would say third value would be when I say family, I mean like your immediate family. Friends, family. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think the third value is the love of knowledge. I feel like you actually, not just knowledge of self, but just the stuff around you, just knowing how amazing things are. Like that's a value because everything works within the 12, uni 12 universal laws. So you have to appreciate everything around you because without... Without the worm, the worm would be able to worm the, weave the seeds into the ground. Do you know what I mean? Without the dung beetle that rolls up cow dung or whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to get certain things right. So appreciating life around you, um, understanding how great your family are and just love you as an individual because you are the one out of 10 million that made it to the egg. So you are mm -hmm. great. Good point. Good, good. Uh, second one is what three realistic wishes would you have if you had three really, if you had three realistic wishes, what yeah. would they be? Three realistic wishes. Um, one, I wish my mother's health was better. Two, I wish Europeans. I wish you. <laughs> I wish Europeans would leave Africa alone. <laughs> <laughs> and a third one, I wish. Um, our young people would be safe on the roads. Cool. Smart that. Very relevant, man. Last one being, uh, what three books could you not live without? Ooh. <laughs> oh. 
pretty fox. Mm. Okay. Marcus Garvey, message to the people. Um, the biography of Malcolm X. And the third book I can't... Make it a European one. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> a European... The Bible. No, <laughs> um, third book would probably be... Um, ooh. Um, okay. It would probably be... Any music book about blues and jazz. So like a biography of like John Coltrane or something like that. Okay. Yeah, a music book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay, yeah. fair enough, man. Mm-hmm. Wicked. Yeah, um, let, can you just let the people know, our listeners, viewers, subscribers, where they can reach you? Social platforms and all the rest of it. Okay, cool. Um, people, you can reach me on Instagram, Daryl Blake. So it's D-A-R-R-E-L dot Blake. Um, Twitter is Daryl Blake again, but it's Daryl, D-A-R-R-E-L underscore, underscore Blake. Um, and also my um, company, which is called Black Rooted. Um, if you type Black Rooted into Instagram, it will come up because there's not many Black Rooted's. And Twitter, it will come up as well because um, there's not many Black Rooted's. And Facebook, it will come up as well. You'll see it. it's got like something thousand um, followers. So it will come up. It's got a Africa logo. Africa's the content as a logo and it's got like patches of different colours. Um, so you can find what I'm doing through Black Rooted as an organisation where I teach, um, where I do um, lectures, um, presentations, workshops, events, so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I have myself as a single entity then the company Black Rooted, which I'm trying to like build my team at the moment and, you know, trying to make it grow, which the programme, the Young Readers, Future Leaders is going to be via Black Rooted. That's so, yeah. dope. Tell me where to go.